Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good, far better than we deserve. And you are working in ways that we cannot see, even when life seems not good. We pray that in these moments now, you would open us up to the words that you would have us hear. The words of conviction about the things that need to be different in our life. And your word of truth about the things that have always been the same. Your steadfast love and mercy for us today. And it's in your good name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, my son Adam is seven. He says hi to all of you. And uh, right now, uh, we're watching a show together. I grew up a big Star Wars fan, and uh, we're watching the Star Wars movies, and I realized that there's this window of time where we like the same things, and that window's gonna close pretty soon. It's not always gonna last. And right now, we're watching The Mandalorian. That's right. Uh, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. The Mandalorian is a bounty hunter, and the first season opens up in this sort of dusty, remote landscape on this very barren planet. It's set between Star Wars fans, the sixth movie and the seventh movie, but if you're a Star Wars fan, you know that by now, because you've probably watched this. Uh, the Mandalorian has uh, like these, uh, like a lasso kind of thing, this grappling hook that fires out from his wrist, and he's got pistols that he can quick draw from his hips. He's got a rifle on his back, and he lives by this higher code of honor that costs him his reputation. He becomes an outlaw, and he crosses the galaxy on a quest to protect the weak. This guy right here, baby Yoda. Perhaps the cutest, like, character in the history of all movies and film. Uh, so I'm watching The Mandalorian with Adam the other day, and it hits me. I do the math, and it all starts adding up. Uh, barren, dusty landscape, quick draw pistols, outlaw, lasso. Do you know what the Mandalorian actually is? It's not just a Star Wars movie, whether you've seen it or not. The, the, it's a Western, my friends. Uh, come to find out, so much has been written about how parallel these two narratives are, the Mandalorian and Western films, and even samurai stories. Uh, quick question, how many of you can tell me what the name of this Clint Eastwood movie is? Tammy, you've got your hand up. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. And so it hits me the other day that not just is, I'm, is the Mandalorian like a Western movie, but I'm reading Acts chapter 9. Okay, get this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Guess what Saul's professional occupation is? He's a bounty hunter. Check that out. He, uh, and this is, by the way, way before bounty hunters were cool, uh, Saul joins the outlaws, the disciples. He goes into hiding after Jesus appears to him on the road of Damascus, and he becomes a part of this movement of followers of Jesus called the Way. They weren't called Christians. They were called followers of the Way. And he has on this road this incredible encounter with Jesus. Jesus uh, speaks to him, and he says in response, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says back to him, I am Jesus 
whom you are persecuting. And this very small interaction is very important for us today. We've been looking at all of the face-to-face encounters that Jesus had after he was risen from the dead with hundreds and hundreds of people, but here today, this private encounter that he has with Saul. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's very, very revealing, very surprising, very personal and practical for us today. I want to look at the question he asked and the answer Jesus gives. That's what we'll do over the next few minutes together. First, to the question, Saul, also called Paul, I'll probably call him both things over the next few minutes, asks of Jesus. Now we're in Acts chapter nine. Let's rewind just a moment and get a sense of what's happening right before this. The end of Acts chapter seven, it says that Saul is there approving the death of Stephen. Stephen's the first martyr in the Christian church and he's killed in the city of Jerusalem and the disciples who are fleeing persecution are leaving the city of Jerusalem. They're on their way to Damascus. It's very interesting for us to pull over and just note for us today that the forces working against the safety of the church are the very same things that God is using to advance the mission of the church. Which should be good news for the church in any generation. That the very things working against the church are the very things that God is using for the church, for that matter, in our own lives too. And so Saul, uh, it says, and if we read further into chapter 8, that he's entering people's homes, that he's dragging Christians out into the streets, and he's separating husbands and wives, and pulling mothers out of the arms of their children, dragging them into the streets to take them to Jerusalem to be on trial and perhaps killed. He's a bad man. And so when we find him in Acts chapter 9, he's on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus, and he's got a handful of arrest warrants in his hand. It's 160 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. It's about the distance if you left downtown Denver on I-70 and drove east to the Kansas border. We can do that in a couple of hours by car. By foot, 10 days if you're pushing it, day after day after day. And he encounters Jesus, and he asks him this question. Let's look at verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Which is not a question that we might expect Paul to ask. Paul grew up likely in a religious household. And we know that he was a Pharisee, that he went to religious schools, and that as a part of being a Pharisee, he would have been a very religious elite, would have been very noble and trying his best to live up to a high code of honor and keep all the rules and laws and regulations, and that he would have memorized the scriptures front and back. And Paul, with all of that background, thought he knew who God is, and now he's asking, who are you? Lord, despite all of his background and all of his training. This is the kind of question that we'd find Paul asking. But yet here he is by the side of the road. If we just subtract the blinding light for a moment, this is still a good question for us to ask today. 
though it's a question that for many of us we've stopped asking. Who are you, Lord? What do you like? And what are you up to? For some of us, that's because we've maybe perhaps grown up in a religious household and we've been to services like this and we've heard a reading like that or heard Jesus say, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I think something happens for some of us who are in the room that the longer we follow Jesus, the easier it is to settle and assume the degree to which we know him now is about as good as it will ever get. We just kind of get used to knowing him like we know him. We have a set of assumptions. But I wonder if it can be deeper. I was standing at the bus stop on Monday, and we live on the corner, and the bus stop is at our house on the corner, and there are two dads who were there, usually before I get there, and there's another mom and a dad that come from up the street this way, and they've got twins that are in Adam's class. And I got there after the two dads were there, and we're making small talk, waiting for the bus with our kids, and one of them turns to me and says, "Uh, so how was your weekend? which is a question that you ask on a Monday, you know. And I said, oh, it was good. Uh, we, uh, I was pulling weeds in the yard with the kids because it's dandelion season now in Denver, you know. And uh, I mowed my grass for the first time. And I think I'm going to turn on my sprinklers next weekend. You know, I'm kind of trying to remember what it, I was doing. I said, oh, we had a really great Mother's Day. And I... Um, was staring across at these two guys and my voice kind of trailed off because I realized that one of them had just told us at the bus stop about a week before that that he and his wife were separating. And I realized as I'm telling him, we had a great Mother's Day, that he probably wasn't celebrating Mother's Day this year with his wife or with his kids. And so we, uh, we make small talk, bus drives up, the kids get on, we wave goodbye, bus drives off, talk for a couple more minutes, and I turn around, and somewhere between the bottom step and the front door, I realize, and probably fairly benignly, maybe I got distracted, whatever it was, I'm sure he's not up thinking about it, that I never turned back to ask him, well, how was your weekend? And I realized that's probably not as big of a deal as what was happening under the surface in that moment. It was this. That I was more interested in me, my story, and my needs than I was interested in him. Or either one of them asking, well, how was your weekend? How was yours? That I hadn't returned that question back. Again, they're probably not up thinking about it. Probably not a big deal. But I think it's possible for us to settle to be content to the degree to which we know the people around us. Because we do this with our neighbors, we do this with the people who we've known for years who live just a few feet away from us. We do this in our family. We do this with our friends. If you're married, there are seasons of this that we have with our spouse. We just kind of get used to the way that things are. And I would argue that if we do that with them horizontally, you better believe that we do that with him vertically too. It's easy to settle, to stop asking this question, who are you, Lord? 
Well, what do you like? What are you up to? How can I know you more deeply than I know you today? For some of us, this is a question that we've stopped asking. And for some of us, this is a question that we're asking all over again in brand new ways. Sometimes this is a question not born out of curiosity. Who are you? Sometimes this is a question born out of pain. Who are you? And what are you up to? And how could this be happening? Why is it taking so long? For some of us, this is a question that we're asking all over again that's born out of awe and wonder and gratitude. Who are you, Lord? And what are you up to? And how could you be so good after so long? I don't deserve how good you've been to me. Who are you, Lord? And whether this is your question in this season of your life right now, or not? Can I invite you to have the humility to let God contradict you? To reset your assumptions about who he is and what he's like and what he's up to in your life. To have the humility to let him contradict you and not just change what you know about him, but to change you. For that matter, when was the last time that you changed the way that you think about him, the way that you know him, the way that you live your life. You open the scriptures and said, you know, I think that the way that I respond to this person needs to be different and not just to pledge that, but to stick to that. What's the last time that you changed and conformed your life and submitted in, in good obedience and devotion to his design for your life rather than live the way that you would live? It is so easy to settle. But may I invite you not only to pray for humility, to, but to pray for divine discontent to be unsettled in the degree to which you know him now and to long for him. I look at these words from the scriptures, two great promises among many. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29. Take off the qualifier at the end just for a moment. Look at the goodness of that promise. You move toward me, I move toward you. James chapter 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And if you pray that prayer, do you think that's the kind of prayer that God's going to say no to? Lord, give me the humility to know you better and I'm open to letting my assumptions about you be reset. Teach me something new about you, if that's got to convict me about something different, if that's comforting me about something that's always been the same, I'm drawing near to you. Would you draw near to me? Because after all, that's what you've promised in the scriptures. You think that's the kind of prayer he says no to? Is he going to leave you hanging? Absolutely not. Who are you, Lord, is a good prayer for you and for me. Paul said it back then, but it's a good prayer for us to pray today. That's number one. Now, look at the answer that Jesus gives. He says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Wait, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Think about that for a moment. We might expect Jesus to respond differently because here's a surprising response that we have in this case too. Uh, we might expect Jesus to say, I am Jesus and the people that you're persecuting, uh, you've been persecuting them, my people. But what does he say instead? I am Jesus and you're persecuting me. I mean, 
what does that reveal to us about us and him and the response that Jesus gives to Paul? Well, there's something very personal and practical for us. It means that he's connected to us in our suffering. As a parent, I've heard it said that you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And if that's true for us and our children, and if you're not a mom or dad in here, know that when you hurt, your parents ache. If that's true for the way that we live, our human relationships with our parents or our kids, how much more true is that for us and our Heavenly Father? That when you hurt, He breaks. That any assault on you is an assault on Him. When you hurt, He hurts too. And He is not far and distant when you are suffering, but He is near and close. That He's connected to you in your suffering, and He is connected to you in your sin. I find it fascinating that here is Saul who thinks that he's doing good things for. Uh, is a very religious person and yet he is against Jesus and despite that, Jesus is for Saul. Can you imagine the the difference? For Saul, he thinks he's doing good things. For him, it was inconceivable that anyone would claim, any human being would claim to be God himself or that God, for that matter, would wrap himself in human flesh and live here on earth. It was inconceivable, in fact, so inconceivable that it was offensive that anyone would make that claim. There was no way it could fit into his construct of who he thought God was, and he was willing to persecute, to pull children away from their parents. He's a bad man. And yet, Jesus is for him. He's connected in Saul's sin. He's connected in yours too because know this, that your sin matters just as much as Saul's sin. It matters just as much to God as Saul's sin mattered. But yet at the same time, though that's fairly frightening, it's good news that your sin matters just as little And even before he formed you in your mother's womb, he knew you and all the things that you would do, and he knows the things that you still have left to do, the ways that you will put yourself before the people around you and the people even who matter to you. He knows those things, and yet still he entered the brokenness of this messy world, and he took on human flesh, and he died on the cross and rose from the dead simply so that you could belong to him by grace forever, no matter what you've done. And in your sin, he is not far and distant and moving away from you, despite his holiness and his goodness, that in his love for you, his movement is always toward you. How good that is. Let's ask ourselves as we close here, so what does that matter for us? today. I mean, if, if any of that is true, it means at least this, that if, 
He's forever on a pursuit after us in our suffering and in our sin. If he's on a quest so that we might belong to him and know him and be his and live under him in his kingdom forever, that means at least this one thing that he's calling us to follow him to. To be the kind of people who don't keep score and don't withdraw and the people who don't separate from others in their sin or don't separate from others in their suffering you have somebody who just happens to pop into your mind when you're doing something kind of mindless? Uh, like you're washing the dishes. Oh yeah, I wonder how that person's doing. I haven't thought about them, heard from them in a while. You're folding laundry. Oh yeah, I haven't heard from them in a while. Uh, you're brushing your teeth, whatever it is. Do you have somebody who just happens to pop into your mind randomly? Maybe that's not so random. Maybe that's someone who got his foot in your mind on purpose in that moment. And maybe that's somebody who very simply and benignly you haven't talked to in a while. Best case. Maybe that's someone who you disagree with and it just doesn't seem worth it. Maybe that's somebody who you need to forgive and you would rather just pull away. Maybe it's a grudge that you feel just to some degree because you've done so much and they haven't done enough that you need to, they need to forgive you. I've got somebody in my family who I'm related to and it's really easy for me to keep score to remember the things that I've done and to forget the things that they've done feels at least to me and probably not objectively but at least subjectively from my perspective that I'm the one doing all the work and they're doing very little in return. And I've asked for what I need. Seems like it falls on deaf ears but it doesn't change the fact that I want something deeper with this person than I've had with them lately. It's easy for me to keep score. I'm fascinated by the way Ananias responds to Saul. Because it would be easy for him to keep score too. Shows up at this house, so there's Saul praying. And I'm sure Ananias was terrified. He's you know, already protested in prayer to Jesus. You know, is this guy undercover? Is he just going to take me away and haul me away too, along with the rest of them, and take me back to Jerusalem, perhaps to be tried and even killed? How does Ananias respond without keeping score? Because remember the first two words that come out of his mouth. Brother Saul. How can you do that too? live without keeping score and to move toward people, to pursue them rather than to withdraw from them. My friends, it's only when you see the one who doesn't keep score with you. Who kept a code of honor you could not keep and crossed the galaxies, heaven and earth. Who came not at the expense of his reputation 
or the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. He gave it on the cross. He is Jesus. That's who he is, persecuted and crucified and risen for Paul and for you and for me. In the name of Jesus, amen.